Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. And uh, I want to say hello to those of you on our parent, uh, in our parent viewing rooms and our online campus. Uh, if you're watching online, thanks for joining us there. Parent viewing rooms, that's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, also, I just want to say um, this, I lost a bet. So if you walked in and you saw me wearing a cheese head, uh, I bet a friend that the uh, Vikings would win, and he bet that the Packers would win, and the loser had to wear the cheese head in the lobby today, and I lost. So I will uh, have said cheese head on again, as painful as it is, uh, after this service. So I just wanted to clarify that. I'm not switching sides. I'm loyal to the purple. <laughs> uh, a few years ago, right after my son was born, my son's eight years old, in 2014 he was born, and uh, right after he was born, um, my wife and I, we, it was one of those nights I, I just couldn't sleep, and I had uh, something going on in my heart. I was actually having chest pains, and it wasn't like chest pains of like, oh, I just had a fourth kid kind of chest pains. It was like actual physical chest pains, and uh, I just couldn't sleep all night, and it wasn't heartburn. It was different than that, and I just I, I had this heaviness in my heart and in my chest, and uh, so about... 5 a.m., I, I said, I'm, I think I'm just going to head to the ER. And uh, I was worried about it enough that I, I decided to go in. And so I got to the ER, and they hooked me up to an EKG, and they took blood work, and they're doing all this stuff, and uh, trying to figure out, you know, what's the problem. And um, so I was there for several hours. And uh, finally, um, they kind of, after being there for a while, they came in and said, you've got a, a case of, uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but pericarditis. Uh, there is a, a sack of fluid around your heart, and somehow mine had just become inflamed. And that's what I was experiencing. So they said, it's, it's nothing to worry about. It'll take care of itself. You can take some Advil and go home, and you'll be fine. And I was like, oh, thanks. Um, it's actually really good news. And I was excited to know that it wasn't anything worse than that, but it was definitely a scare for me to, to, to think about uh, the fact that something could be going on with my heart. And it got me thinking as we're thinking about this series around uh, emotional health, uh, as careful as we are to monitor our physical heart, why is it that we're far less inclined to monitor our other heart? That part of us from which we uh, live and laugh and love and fear and conduct relationships, why is it that we spend very little time monitoring that heart? And so today we're starting this series on emotional health. And the reason we're doing this is because in our emotions, uh, oftentimes this is how we conduct relationships. And, and here's kind of the big thought of this series. The big idea of this series is this. You cannot be spiritually mature and remain emotionally immature. It's very, very difficult to say, I'm going to grow in my love for Jesus. I'm going to grow in spiritual maturity, but emotionally I'm still immature. And all of these emotions that are still in my heart that I, that I haven't dealt with, they actually make their way out and they affect our relationships. My emotions, the things that I experience internally always impact my relationships. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know this, and we say this all the time, that people matter to God. And so they should matter to us. And so it's really important if you're going to grow spiritually, it means that you've got to grow emotionally because our emotions impact our relationships in significant ways. And somewhere along the way, if you're following Jesus, you can't just say, okay, God, I, I, I want to become more like Jesus. I want to grow in my love for Jesus. But emotionally, I still carry all of these emotions that impact the people around me. And so King Solomon, who wrote many of the Proverbs in the Hebrew Scriptures, wrote this, and I think it's fitting for this entire series. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. 
Everything in your life originates in this invisible, intangible, uh, this thing that we call our heart. And when we talk about our heart, it's not your brain. It's not simply your emotions. Uh, it's not a nerve or a muscle that pumps blood throughout your body, right? That's, a, that's your physical heart. But when we talk about heart in, in the way that we talk about, uh, you know, I love you with all my heart or I give you my heart, that we use those phrases around Valentine's Day. Uh, it's the center of our spiritual being. It's the command center for being human. And it's why we use that type of language of the heart. It's why uh, around Valentine's Day, we give a, a heart-shaped uh, you know, balloon or heart-shaped candies. And we know that we're not referring to that muscle inside of our body that pumps blood. Nobody's given you know, chalk candy to each other in the shape of a, a muscle, a physical heart, right? It's disgusting. As a matter of fact, the word heart or, or a reference to that part of us, that the emotional seat of our being uh, is referenced over 900 times in the scriptures. And scripture is very, very clear. The teachings of the scriptures are clear. You can't follow your heart. You've got to guard your heart. And there's a big difference. And I can't tell you how many times people say, well, I just got to follow my heart on this. And it, like, the, there's probably no, uh, there's no, no, no experience I've had where people have said, I'm going to follow my heart. And it's just, it's, come, it's turned out to be, you know, the best thing that they've ever done. It, it, that phrase is used more often on The Bachelor than anywhere else. And we all know how that turns out. You know, it's like not a huge success rate. Well, I just followed my heart. I was in love with 10 of them. And here's the reality. That's the worst advice I've ever heard. Instead, here's what the scriptures teach. You have to guard your heart because everything that you do flows from your heart. So it's not just follow my heart wherever my heart leads. It's actually, no, 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 guard what goes in because whatever goes in eventually makes its way out. This is, this is something that you want kids to learn early on. It's not just about, uh, hey, you know what, uh, be a good kid. It's no, whatever goes in eventually is going to make its way out. So instead of just going, well, follow my heart, follow my instincts, follow whatever emotion I have, that's a horrible way to live your life. If you want to live a roller coaster of a life, then do that. But the truth is, we have to guard what goes in because whatever goes in eventually makes its way out. Now, I wasn't taught that as a kid necessarily. In fact, I think for most of us as parents, our natural instinct is to uh, teach kids to modify their behavior. Not so much guard their heart, but modify their behavior. And so I know as a kid, I was taught, hey, be good, right? Do good things. Don't be bad, right? Don't do bad things. And so uh, as parents, that's kind of instinctive for us is to go, hey, this is the things that you should do and the things that you should say in these situations. And these are the things to not do and not say. And, uh, and then we sort of create a, a reward system and a punishment system to incentivize kids to behave in those ways. And it's natural for us as parents to do that. And it's the same thing my parents did with me. I can still remember at five years old, uh, I, 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 can, I can pull this, uh, this image out of my archives anytime. Uh, I'll never forget this image when I was five years old and we were at my grandparents' house in Shakopee, Minnesota. And, and I can still remember, I don't remember what me and my older sister were fighting about, but I just, I can, I can vividly remember the image of my fist hitting her chest. And I can vividly remember the, the sting of the spanking that I got afterwards. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, to my recollection, I, I never hit my sister again after that. I mean, it was like burned into my memory uh, and my backside that you do not hit your sister. 
And so uh, I was just like, man, that's not worth it. Like whatever emotion I'm experiencing, I didn't deal, I didn't learn to deal with the emotion of anger. I just learned don't hit because I don't like the, the outcome. And so we create these external systems to modify our behavior. And, and to a certain extent, we have to do that, right? Because we all have to like live with each other and, you know, live indoors and, right? And so there's a certain part of that that isn't necessarily bad, but here's what happens. Uh, my parents had this incredibly creative way of uh, encouraging us to modify our behavior. It was known as a spanking. And uh, my dad had built something that the four of us kids uh, unanimously decided to name the claw. And he built it in his woodshed. Uh, he, my dad had a, a woodworking shop and uh, he made this two by four and it had four fingers on it. And he rounded it off. There were no sharp edges. And it hung in their room. And whenever we, it was time for us to receive a spanking, I'm pretty sure I got more than anybody else in my family. But uh, they would just be like, it was, it's hanging in their room. And you had to retrieve it for your own spanking. It's like a rudimentary torture device for kids. I think that falls somewhere under child abuse, if I'm, not, if I'm being honest. But. but you talk about an incentive program to modify your behavior. That works. And I'll tell you what, those, these are my earliest memories of behavior modification. And the truth is, all of us navigate life by modifying our behavior to a certain extent. Uh, there's certain, there are certain rewards for saying and doing what society deems as the right thing in certain situations. And there are certain consequences that you want to avoid for saying and doing what society deems as the wrong thing in certain situations. And to a certain extent, there is something healthy to that, right? Of going, look, I, I don't say everything that comes to my mind. I filter my words and my behavior to a certain extent. The problem with that is that somewhere along the way, we can filter to such a point that we actually lose sight of what's going on in our emotions inside. And so to a certain extent, you, you have to, as you grow older, modify your behavior, modify your speech if you want to make and keep friends, right? If you want to get a date, if you want to get a second date, if you want to get a husband or a wife, if you want to keep a husband or a wife, if you want to get a job, if you want to keep a job, there's certain things that you do and don't do and say and don't say in all of our relationships, uh, our ability to have a job or have a career or get opportunities or income are all dependent on our ability to, on some level, filter and edit our words and behavior. That's why you type the angry email, but you don't push send. It's why you, you have an imaginary conversation with yourself after you have an intense disagreement with someone and you work it out internally. It's why you've learned not to say and do everything that comes to your mind or you would drive away loved ones or friends or opportunities. You can't show all the crazy all the time, right? And so we make these little rules in an effort to help ourselves. We make uh, rules that say, here, in this situation, you don't say that. In this situation, you don't do that. And it's in an, in an effort to avoid larger consequences or gain rewards. Uh, the interesting thing is, I looked at, back at some states that have laws that are still on the books that they, you know, were written a couple hundred years ago or whatever, and for some reason never got, uh, never got canceled. And some of these are like, it made me think, what are the underlying issues that they were trying to solve with some of these laws? For instance, in Arkansas, it's illegal for a wife to move furniture without her husband's approval. Like, was this a big problem? Like, I don't, I don't know who first came up with that. Uh, how about this one? In Alabama, this is a legit law. Boogers may not be flicked into the wind. I don't know if like somebody was driving down the road and they're just like, this is getting out of hand. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but, and then uh, listen to this in Montana, 
It is illegal to have a sheep in the cab of your truck without a chaperone. I don't even want to know, all right? Like, I'm sure you've got your reasons, Montana, right? You do you, all right? But modifying our behavior, editing our words, it only takes us so far, right? It only takes us to a certain point. At some point, we have to be honest with ourselves. And if all we do, and of course, we have to do that to a certain extent to like live in a functioning society. But if all we do is always filter, always, uh, always sort of edit, always modify our behavior, but we never actually guard what's going into our hearts, somewhere along the way, what is in us is going to pierce that filter. Somewhere along the way, whatever we're experiencing is actually going to come out. And it, 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 it'll, it'll surface because it's in our hearts. In fact, uh, Solomon would later write this, as a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. You want to know who the real you is? It's what's going on inside of you. And somewhere along the way, even in spite of your best efforts to modify your behavior and to edit your language and and to filter your words, somewhere along the way, the real you is going to come out. In other words, we can monitor in such a way that we keep the real issues hidden, but it only lasts for so long. It's one of the reasons that I bump into people and couples and they'll say after a year or two years or a few years of marriage, they just go, man, I don't know. They just changed. I mean, something, something just changed with them. They're not the same person I married. And the truth is they are the same person. That was already in there. Now it's just coming to the surface. Because that was in you. Uh, it's why sometimes we say something rude or harsh or in the... Uh, anger of a moment, we say something that we, you know, we go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. And, and what's the language that we use? We say things like, that's not the real me. That was uncharacteristic of me. I didn't mean that. And the truth is, I did mean that. I just didn't mean to say that out loud to you. The facade slipped a little. My filter got punctured with what was really going on in my heart. And uh, was that out loud? Oh, I'm sorry. We call that a Freudian slip, right? We just blame psychology. We go, that was a Freudian slip. It's like uh, the woman who went to ask her husband, please pass the cornflakes. And what came out was, you ruined my life, you stupid jerk. So Freudian slip. That's, that's what that is. Here's what Jesus says about this. He says this, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know the real reason that you said that hurtful thing? That came out of you because it's in you. It overflowed. The thing that was in you was more than your filter could handle. It was more than your behavior modification could handle. And it overflowed. And it came out of you. And that's the real you. And that's the real me. And the reason it came out of me is because it was in me, Jesus says. And I have a filter, and you have a filter, and we've learned to get along, and we've learned to maintain relationships and edit and monitor our words and behavior and actions. But that's just not enough. Because all of that effort without a change of heart, all of that effort without actually dealing with the root issue, eventually will wear you out. Eventually, the real you is going to pierce that filter. Eventually, what's in my heart is going to spill out. It's going to overflow. And so Solomon says, you got to deal with what's in your heart. You've got to guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. And Jesus says, eventually, whatever is in you, it overflows. And you're going to say and do what's really in you eventually is going to come out. And to be honest, that's why church can sometimes, sometimes church settings can seem so fake. Because what happens is if, if the message isn't, hey, come as you are, 
Unfortunately, what happens is people think, well, I better be the best version of me. I got to be a good person to go to church. And you end up with a bunch of people trying to be good instead of a bunch of messy people trying to acknowledge the mess. Church should be the messiest place on earth. The church ought to be the, the messiest, most messed up, crazy place on earth because it's a group of a bunch of messed up, broken sinners coming together. And think about this. And unfortunately, what happens, and it's unintentional, but the message gets messed up and people think, I want to go to church so I can be good. I want to go to church so I can figure out how to be a good person. And that's really not the message of Jesus. And so what ends up happening unintentionally is you got people who are hiding all of what's really going on in their heart. Instead of dealing with a real heart issue, they're going, I've got to get really good at creating really good filters and modifying my behavior and modifying my speech so I can function in society and so the outside looks good. But unfortunately, there's something deeper going on. And if you don't deal with that, eventually it will make its way out. A good way to think about this is this. Uh, uh, one of the, the top, not one of, the top um, all-time leading scorer in NCAA men's basketball is a guy named Pete Maravich, uh, otherwise known as Pistol Pete. Pistol Pete started on varsity in high school when he was in eighth grade. His dad was a coach, and his dad just realized this kid is something special. He's talented. And so in eighth grade, he started varsity, leading scorer, five years of high school varsity basketball, went on to play four years at LSU. And in four years at LSU, this is unbelievable. He's still the all-time leading scorer in men's college basketball. Uh, He averaged 44 points a game for his career. That's unbelievable. And this is before there was a three-point line. So think about this. This record is almost untouchable. And so he just had this incredible career. He went on to play in the NBA and just this incredibly gifted athlete. And at 40 years old, he was playing a a game of pickup basketball and he fell over, had a massive heart attack and died on the basketball court. 40 years old. Picture of health. In fact, we've experienced a little bit of this uh, this week and we talk about this with athletes and it happens a lot, but even just this week in the NFL uh, with uh, Damar Hamlin. A guy who's 24 years old, picture of athleticism and health, and falls over on the field. Now, thankfully, he's, he seems to be doing well. But what is going on there? For Pistol Pete, uh, they realized that nobody had known for 40 years that he was actually born with only one coronary artery instead of the normal two. And so for 40 years, this guy just did everything, athlete, played basketball, did everything he could, and one day just dropped dead. Why is that? The picture of health. It's because there was something going on internally that no one had been able to monitor. He was the picture of health on the outside, but his heart gave out because of something that was previously undiscovered and undealt with. And the same thing can happen to us. That can happen in our emotional lives if we're not careful to guard our hearts, where we do a really good job of modifying our behavior, of editing our speech. But there's actually an undealt with issue going on on the inside. And if we don't deal with that, there are things that can be taken place in our heart that undealt with can cause a lot of harm. They can cause a lot of destruction in our relationships. And so during this series, here's what we want to do. We want to look at some of these things. Some of these things that can be like, they can, they can clog the arteries of our heart. These emotions that left undealt with really wreak havoc in our relationships. And then we want to provide some tools to help us. So we're going to look at uh, guilt. We're going to look at anger. uh, We're going to look at greed. We're going to look at jealousy. We're going to look at pride. Some of these things that we just go, man, uh, I I don't deal with that. 
because I've done a really good job of modifying my behavior. But the truth is, if we don't deal with some of these things, they will overflow. They will cause some kind of problem in our hearts and eventually in our relationships. And so today, uh, we're going to look at this one thing that tends to clog up our hearts, this thing called guilt. Now, many of you grew up in maybe a religious setting or a family setting that led you to believe that guilt and church just go hand in hand. That's just the way it is, right? Like peanut butter and jelly, or guys and explosions, or cats and demons. (laughs) And uh, maybe you think that because you had an experience uh, growing up, and, and maybe your experience was that you'd go to church and the pastor or the priest would basically just lay this huge guilt trip on everybody, tell them how wrong they are, and then they'd pass a bucket at the end, and then you're like, people are pained to be told how guilty they are. This makes no sense to me. And I totally get that. Uh, and maybe that's been your experience or your expectation with church is that it's all about guilt. And if that's the case, I want you to know right up front today that is not how we operate, and that is not how Jesus operated. Jesus never, ever, ever leveraged guilt. He was not a dispenser of guilt. He never used guilt to manipulate other people to get them to do what he wanted them to do. And here's the crazy thing. If there was anyone who could have leveraged guilt to get his message out, it was Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world without sin, and he was the only one who didn't have guilt. And Jesus could have been like, his whole message is guilty, 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 super guilty. I know what you did last summer. But he didn't. And as you read the story of Jesus, you see, in all of Jesus' interactions with guilty people, Jesus never dealt in the currency of guilt. And here's why. It is typically guilty people, people who are wrestling with their own guilt, who tend to leverage guilt against other people. It's, It's pretty common when I'm dealing with guilt as a deflection against the guilt that I'm experiencing to leverage guilt on others. And guilty people deal in the currency of guilt. But Jesus wasn't guilty. He was sinless, so he didn't need to do that. You don't see that in his way of life. You don't see that in what he taught. You don't see that in the way that he interacted with people. As a matter of fact, later on, uh, the Apostle Paul would write that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He doesn't say, he doesn't say it's, the, it's the guilt of God. Man, Jesus came into the world and he laid such a guilt trip that people started to follow him. He said, no, it's actually the kindness of God that he led with so much grace that when you realized how short you fell from God's standard and you realized that you had sin and then you realized how how much God leans into grace, you're just like, I want to follow him because I recognize it is his kindness, it is his goodness, it is his grace that actually leads me to want to follow him, that leads me to want to turn from the ways that I'm living. Now, not all guilt is bad guilt. Let me just clarify real quick here. If, if guilt is somehow the result of something that you've done and you feel guilty, that is a normal emotion to feel, okay? And this is something kids should experience, right? Kids are like, uh, I feel guilty. And it's like, that's because you're guilty. You've done that. That's why you feel that, you know? And sometimes that can lead you to a good place. What we want to talk about is for, for so many of us, our, the way that we deal with things that we've done wrong, the, the, the way that we deal with sin is we try to just move past it. We don't deal with the actual guilt because guilt is a natural emotion to feel. The problem for us is unresolved guilt. The problem for us is when we are at odds with God or we're at odds with each other because of guilt and it's, it causes us to keep God at an arm's distance or it causes us to have bad relationships with the people that God's put in our life. And so we want to talk about how this unresolved guilt can actually build up almost like, a, uh, almost like a, a blockage in one of our arteries. When it comes to our emotions, we can have this kind of heart disease of guilt. 
And if we don't resolve it, it can actually start to wreak havoc in our relationships. And here's what, here's what guilt says. At the end of the day, guilt says this. I owe you. I owe you. Now, maybe you don't realize that. It says, uh, you know what? I, I said something I wish I hadn't said. I did something I wish I hadn't done. I, uh, I told you I would and I didn't. I told you I would never and I did. I lied to you. Uh, I betrayed you. Uh, I went behind your back. Uh, whatever it is, uh, somewhere along the way, trust is broken. And maybe you've never thought about it in these terms before. But the reality is this. When trust is broken, when you, when you hurt someone, when you've wronged someone, when you've betrayed someone, when you've talked behind someone's back, whatever it is, there is, there is a dynamic in the relationship that shifts. It moves it from equal footing, friend for a friend or uh, spouse or whatever it is, it, it, it shifts it into a debt-debtor relationship. It shifts it into, now, I owe you something. In fact, uh, in Proverbs, Solomon would say this, just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. And when you hurt someone, anytime that you've hurt someone, there's a sense that you've actually taken something from them, that you've actually stolen from them. Uh, it's why we have terminology in our culture that speaks to that. When you've offended someone, uh, when you uh, hurt someone, when you betray someone, and you own up to it, what do you say? You say something like, I owe you an apology, or let me make it up to you. The language that we have suggests, I'm in debt to you. I took something from you. We get the sense that the tension that is created by what we've done or said, and instinctively we recognize that we're now in debt to them in some way. And from every time we offend someone, or we hurt someone, we lie to someone, there's a sense we've taken from them. And when we lie, we've robbed them of, the, of trust. We've robbed them of the ability to have relationship because you can't have good relationship with someone who lies to you. Or uh, when we talk about someone behind their back, we've robbed them of their reputation or we've robbed them of potentially an opportunity. Or when we say something hurtful to someone, we rob them of security, possibly relationship with us, or we rob them of self-esteem. Uh, some of us feel guilty because we don't spend enough time with our kids. And in that sense, what does that mean? I, I feel like I'm robbing my kids of time with me, and it changes the dynamic in your relationship where you feel an indebtedness to your kids. Instead of feeling like you know, I'm caring for them and I love them and there's, this, uh, there's an inequality with us, you feel indebted to them because you feel like you've stolen something from them. And often guilt is the result of just leaving that debt unresolved, unresolved, and that's what causes guilt. And so the question is, what do we do about it? How do I resolve that? As I move into 2023, I don't want to carry that with me anymore. So how do I resolve that? Well, we got a couple options. One, we can repay it, or we can have it canceled. A couple of options. We can pay it back, or we can have it canceled. Now, there's a bit of a problem with the first one. Some of the things that we feel have been stolen from other people that we feel like, man, I really owe this to them, can't be repaid, can they? How do you pay back a reputation? Hey, let me write you a check for that. How do you pay back a first marriage? How do you pay back, uh, I wish I'd spent more time with you in your childhood? How do you pay back hurtful words and actions? How do you pay back someone their self-esteem? It's impossible. And since it's impossible to repay many of the intangible relational debts that we've accumulated in this life, we end up carrying guilt around everywhere we go, and it affects the relationships that we're in now. And oftentimes, it's not even the people in our, this current stage of life that we feel guilty that we've done something to. It's somewhere along the way we picked up some guilt, and now it's just lodged in our hearts, and it's actually impacting and affecting the people in our sphere of influence today and in this season. 
And so the guilt that you picked up in college that's unresolved, you carry it with you into your marriage. And the guilt that you picked up on a business trip that's unresolved, you carry it with you into this next season of life and you bring it back home. And the guilt that you picked up in a first failed marriage, you carry it with you into your second marriage. And as long as you have unresolved guilt in your life, it doesn't just affect that season of life. It actually, you carry it with you. It's in your heart. And now it starts to impact the relationships around you. You start to feel indebted. And it's unnatural and it's unhealthy and it will eat at you and eat at you. And eventually it starts to, it starts to poison your heart. It's like a toxin and it starts to poison your relationships. It starts to erode your faith until you just deal with it. Until you say, okay, I got to figure out how to have this canceled. And since we can't repay it, we have to have it canceled. Some of these debts that we feel that we owe and that we do owe, we can't repay in a hundred years. And so we have to have these canceled to move forward. And that requires us to do something that most of us are not very good at, myself included, something we don't fully understand. And it's revealed in these next verses. These verses are from Psalm. And this is uh, David, King David in the Old Testament. He's writing about this feeling of guilt that he carries with him, like a burden, like a weight. And then he describes what happens when he finally confesses and reveals what's going on inside and, and, and how that burden is lifted. Listen to these words. And I think a lot of us can relate to this. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. We, we, around here, we call that lights on, windows open, transparent. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You can sense on, on the one hand, just how this affects him physically in his body, how it's unhealthy for him to carry this guilt around. And then at the same time, you can sense this incredible weight that's been lifted when he says, okay, I'm just going to confess, God, please forgive my sins. And he says, and you did. And now my guilt is gone. And you can just sense the relief. And this inner turmoil is causing him actual physical stress and pain. And some of you think that, man, I've, I've got to keep carrying this guilt because it's a part of the appropriate punishment for what I've done. And can I just tell you, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. That is not from God. You do not find that in the heart of God. You find that in the heart of humanity, that we feel broken and we feel the need to pay back what we owe. And God comes along and says, I'm willing to forgive. God comes along and says, I want to show you grace. And that's, that's the message. See, guilt is a heart issue, and left unresolved, it will grow and it will leak into every part of your life. But the good news is that God actually wants to give you freedom from your guilt. And the message of Jesus coming into the world is not a message of, hey, follow me so that you can be good. The message that Jesus came to bring was, look, I recognize that you're broken. This isn't about you trying to be good. This is about you learning to be forgiven so that you can be free from your guilt. In fact, I love what is written in, uh, in, uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is writing uh, on behalf of uh, God to the nation of Israel. And this is God speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And God says this, Come now, let us argue this out. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. 
I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you were stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. And I think it's such interesting language. God says, look, let's, let's argue this out. And the reason we've got to argue this out is because God actually wants freedom for us. God wants forgiveness for us. And we're a hard sell. Sometimes we cling to the things that we've done and our guilt and we hold on to that. God says, no, I want to set you free. So how do we achieve that? Well, here's how we get rid of guilt in our life. We're, the way to clean out guilt is through confession. It's through confession. And uh, if, you, if you want to be free, if you want to remove the weight of the burden of guilt in your life, if you want to get rid of the guilt that has leaked into your heart and leaked into your relationships, how do you get rid of that? It's through the biblical practice of confession. Because you will never be free from the guilt of your past as long as it is a secret, as long as no one knows, as long as it's just growing internally. And at some point in your life, no matter how much you modify your behavior and edit your speech and your actions, at some point that thing is going to overflow. The only way to be free from the guilt of your past is through confession. In fact, John, one of Jesus' disciples and best friends, would write this. He says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. No, 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 I'm, I'm good. I, you know what? I'm a good person. I've done enough good things. I make good decisions. Uh, I've filtered and edited my behavior and my speech enough to the point that I actually am rewarded for doing the right thing in the right situations, and I don't face consequences for doing the wrong things in the wrong situations. John says, you're, just, you're fooling yourself. At some point, there's stuff that gets in, and it gets into all of us, and it overflows. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. The way that we confessed, the very first confession that we need to make is to God. And God is ready to forgive you. And God wants to forgive you. He's willing to forgive you. That's the first step. But it doesn't end there. There's a common misunderstanding about what biblical confession is really all about. We like to confess to God or maybe the priest because it helps us relieve our conscience. And we're, we're able to take the burden and the weight of guilt that we've been carrying and set that aside. And that's a good thing, and that's healthy, and it's the good first step. But how many times have you confessed to God only to turn around and do the same thing that you just confessed? God, I must confess, this is what I did, and I'm really, really sorry. And then the next time that you have the opportunity to do that thing, you take advantage of that opportunity. And then what goes through our minds? This is just natural. This happens to me. This is just very natural as human beings. We go, 1 John 1, 9. He, if I confess, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin. So if I do it now, and I can confess to him later, and then he'll forgive. And guess what? He will. The problem with that is that now my confession habit is actually just supporting my sin habit. And now uh, I'm, I'm letting that lead the way, and it's not actually changing me on the inside. And instead, how many times have you confessed to God and we go, God, I, I lied to her. And God goes, okay, I, I forgive you. But why are you talking to me? Go talk to her. You need to make it right with her. And the goal of confession is not simply to empty your sin bucket, only to fill it up the next day. The goal of confession is that I, it changes my heart and that, I, and that I move past that. And so here's what confession looks like. We confess to God to experience forgiveness. God forgives. We confess to others to experience healing and change. Because the goal of confession is not simply to relieve our conscience, because conscience relief won't affect my life. It won't change my life from the inside. It doesn't promote reconciliation. 
If you want healing and change, then you must go to the person that you hurt, the person you offended, and confess to them and ask them for forgiveness. You've got to bring your secret to light and say, man, I, I, I hurt you. Maybe it's not even a secret. I hurt you. And in my pride, I have been unwilling to ask you for forgiveness. And I've confessed to God, and I know God forgives me, but I need you to forgive me. One of the things that we practice in our house that we've done from early on, my wife and I, uh, is the way that our kids apologize to each other because, um, you know, inevitably siblings fight with each other. And, and so then when, when they apologize, this is every, every sibling's apology in the history of humanity. Sorry. <laughs> and we go, no, 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 come on back, come on back, come on back. So we've had this practice and our kids love it. Uh, and then, and then they, they go for round two, right? And they're like, sorry if I hurt you. Like, well, he's crying in a corner, so I think you hurt him, you know? And so this is, this is, there's like multiple steps that we've, that we've gone through with our kids. We, we, you have to look them in the eye. You have to say their name. You have to say, here's what I'm sorry for. And you have to name it. And then you have to say, will you please forgive me? And then the other person doesn't say, you know, this is very common with kids. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. That's okay. No, it's not okay. I want you to say, I forgive you. Let's acknowledge that what they did was not okay, but that you release them from what they owe you. So this has been our practice. Kids love it. They just think it's the best thing ever. <laughs> but it's healthy. Because there's something about me looking that person that I hurt in the eye and calling their name and acknowledging their humanity and recognizing and naming what I did to them and then asking for them to release me from that debt that I owe. That is what confession looks like. And the odds of me doing the same thing to that same person are pretty low when I've gone through that practice. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. It's very difficult for me to live whole and healed with someone that I've wronged when I'm unwilling to admit that I've wronged them. And so confession is not just to God. Confession is to one another. If you start confessing your sins to the people you've sinned against and you do what you can to make it right, odds are you're not going to commit those same sins again because open confession has the power to break that cycle in our lives. It takes humility. It takes courage. It's very difficult. But the only way to break free of the guilt that you somehow picked up along the way to confess and ask for forgiveness. And here's a couple of things that Jesus said. Jesus said this, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. For people in the first century, this is how they worshiped God. I go to the temple and I, I make a sacrifice and, and now I'm, me and God are good. This is how I worship. But if I'm about to worship and then I, I remember, oh, I'm not good with this person. Here's what Jesus says. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. For Jesus, according to Jesus, you can't have this, oh man, me and God, we're so good. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've got a bunch of people that are kind of upset with me, but, uh, and uh, I've, I've wronged them and hurt them, but God, we're good, right? And Jesus says, no, no, no. You can't have all these broken relationships this way with people created in God's image and then come to God and expect you and God are good. In the same way, you're like, Jeremiah, I mean, you're great, but man, I just, I don't like your kids. Then you and I probably aren't good. If you hurt one of my kids and you don't want to own it, and, and, but you're like, but I really like you, we're probably not going to be good. And what makes us think that we can come to God and we can worship and we can sing songs, and then, but, we, but we, the people that are his children, that are created in his image, we're not willing to take responsibility for the ways that we've hurt them. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 19, there's a guy named Zacchaeus, and he's a tax collector, and he's robbed from people, and he meets Jesus. And, and again, it's the kindness of God, it's the grace of God that leads us to change, leads us to repentance. And he confesses to Jesus, and he says, I've stolen, and I'm committing to pay back everyone what I stole from them. And Jesus doesn't go, ah, you don't have to do that. Jesus goes, good idea. He doesn't disagree with Zacchaeus. Do you know why we don't do this? We're terrified of the consequences of confession. What will happen if I do? And do you know why we are scared of the consequence of confession? It's because we do not fully understand the consequence of concealment. But I'm telling you, something hidden in your heart has the potential to do long-term, devastating damage to your relationships. It is much better, much better to deal with whatever's going on. In the same way, that's an, an issue in your physical heart the longer it goes on, does much more devastating damage than to just deal with it up front. In the same way, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our emotions, if we don't deal with these things head on, eventually they grow and they grow and grow, and the consequence of concealment is far worse. Don't live your life under the crushing weight of guilt. Confess your sins to God. Confess as much as you can to the one that you've sinned against, and whatever is in your power, make restitution. Maybe for some of you that this week, that means, man, you know what? There is someone that I need their forgiveness and I'm going to ask them to forgive me and I'm going to ask them to cancel the debt that I owe them. And I, I don't know if I can ever make it up to them, but I'm going to try. And I'm going to at the very least ask them to cancel that debt because I don't want this dynamic between that relationship. Make that call, write that letter, have that conversation this week. Let's end with this verse, Proverbs 28. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. The message of the scriptures, the, the message of the Bible, cover to cover, the good news is this. You and I are broken. I'm broken, you're broken, we recognize that. And throughout human history, as human beings, we've tried to figure out how do we make that right in our own strength, in our own might, in our own power, in whatever ways we could. And oftentimes that includes behavior modification, and it doesn't work. It works for a little bit, and eventually what's in us actually comes out. And so God sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus wasn't guilty. He's the only one who wasn't guilty, the only one that wasn't broken. And then Jesus didn't come and leverage guilt to get us to follow him. Instead, he leveraged grace and said, hey, as broken as you are, I want to help heal the brokenness between you and God and you and the people in your life. If you'll just acknowledge that you're broken, acknowledge your sins, I am quick to forgive. And I want to shower you with grace. And then I want to help you move forward to become everything I've created you to be. That's the message of the good news of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never said yes, if you've never just owned your sins and before God and said, God, I confess my sins to you. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to invite you to do that today. And for others of you, maybe you'd say this. This is the week. I've been putting off that conversation. I haven't wanted to acknowledge what I've done. I haven't wanted to dealt with, deal with the guilt. But the truth is, I, I did something wrong to that person. And God, I'm not just going to confess to you anymore. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to, as best as I know how, make it right. If that's you, I encourage you to take that step. If you want to say, yes, God, please forgive my sins, then just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive me. I know that I've missed the mark. I have sin in my life. Please forgive my sins. And make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to put my trust in you. I acknowledge you're the creator of the universe. And, and it's not because I feel guilt I want to be free from that, and I recognize that you offer grace. So I say yes to that offer. And then, God, for every one of us, whatever it is that's lodged in our hearts, whatever 
whatever we've done in the past, whatever guilt we experience, may we drag it into the light. And God, may we find hope and healing to move forward. Thank you for a new year. We commit to you anew in Jesus' name. Amen.